Let's open up in prayer. Um, I, uh, God, I come before you, and I thank you for the prayer of my pastor. Lord, I thank you for the prayers of all, Father. Um, I have not been this afflicted in a while, Lord. And I've tried in my own intellect, my own understanding, and seeking the counsel of others and getting help. And not much has happened, Father, but I know there's something there that you want to uncover. And you've exposed things within my heart. And I'm grateful. I am grateful, God, that you are faithful, God. It says, and I've said, you scourge every son you receive. You discipline your own because you do it out of love. So, Father, I pray that you have your good work in whatever way that looks, Lord. John the Baptist said, I must lessen that he may increase, Lord. We all must lessen that you may increase. We need more of you, Jesus. And if it means we need to die to self, it means to have those things help us to do that because we cannot do it in our own strength. Lord, it's, I'm, I'm, I pray that the message that goes forth today is your words that are spoken for your glory. That my brothers may be edified, that they may walk in the ways that you want, that I may also be edified by the words that you speak through. We want you to get all the glory. We want your glory to fall upon the entire earth. So have your way in all things. Bless each one here with more of you because there is no greater blessing than more of you. More of you, Jesus. More of you. We need more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're going to go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, this one is a whirlwind. There are 58 verses. So I'm not sure I'm going to be able to cover all of it, but I will do what I can. Um, first, let's start with verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also, which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, most of you should know that the word gospel is where we get the word evangel, evangelism from, okay, from the Greek evangel. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So that's the gospel that Paul preached them. It's an effective gospel, okay, that shows the work of God in their lives, okay? So the other part, he says, if you hold fast. The Greek word is kateko, K-A-T-E-C-H-O. That hold fast means to be stuck, adhere to. It does not mean something that's transient. It means you are steadfast. And so the part here that Paul's talked about, if you hold fast, which also means that if you don't hold fast, you really didn't believe. You believed in vain. So one of the things that we believe here at this body is we really believe that we have to hold fast. That's why we gather together. That's why we press in. Okay, and you have to continue. It's not a path where you can plateau. You can't just coast. You can't be comfort. You have to cling to. You have to continue to press in. Verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We all know this. This is not something that's surprising for those of us who are believers, who've heard about this over and over again, okay? Um, so, the very center of the gospel is that Jesus died. It's critical. We all know that. That he died is core belief. There cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ without believing that he died, okay? He, it's not an opinion, Okay? It's nothing really open to discussion. Okay? It's the very center. It's the foundation of our belief. 
Okay? How did he die? He was crucified. We use the word excruciating, and we talked about that, means pain of the cross. And I remember reading back in the 80s in the American Journal of the American Medical Association, they actually had an article talking about the kind of suffering that a human would have encountered on the cross. Okay? And specifically speaking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Edwards says, even though the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed, designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. Okay? So, you know, if you've seen the Passion, um, Mel Gibson's play, The Passion of the Christ, um, I actually got to see it. I had it for the pastor's um, opening before it was fully released. It was on my birthday in 2004. And um, it's almost unbearable to see the first time. And if you see it again, the amount of pain and suffering, you, one would think it's not humanly possible. It was the very fullest extent of what a human can go through. The fullest extent. Jesus was fully human. Okay? And it talks about, you know, and as a physician, knowing about, you know, what, what actually happened to the body when the nail didn't actually go through here. It actually went through the wrist right into the median nerve. And I've had median nerve damage from a fall, and that pain is incredible. I could not get any relief. And that's just one wrist that I was hurting. And this last week when I've been hurting and bothered by my back and my arms, and even tonight, especially during worship, there was a time when it seemed pretty intense. It does not hold the candle to the amount of suffering that Jesus did for us. Why did he have to suffer so much? Why did Jesus have to suffer that much? It was inconceivable. Why what, did he have to die? Why did he have to die that way? Why couldn't he just die? Because the penalty, the cost of sin was that great. The cost of our sin was that great. We underestimate, every one of us, myself included, we think our sin is not that big of a deal. Huh. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Our sin is a huge deal. It's such a big deal that God had to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And the more we get that, not to be like, woe is me, but the more we apprehend that, the more we can grasp that, the more gratitude we can feel. The purpose is to say, wow, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. So the point is to see that, that when he did that, and those of us who are doing the Pursuit of God study, we um, last week talked about the veil. That's what tore the veil. There was a block. We were spiritually dead. And at that point, when he died, he opened a way for us to get to God. Okay? Look at Isaiah chapter 53, 3-5, talking about the character of the suffering servant. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We are healed. So everything that and Paul's mentioned that to the Corinthians because he wants them to know, and it's the same thing why it's mentioned in the scripture. We need a continual reminder that his crucifixion was necessary for our healing, our wholeness. And they talk about on the cross, okay, at that moment, the Father turned his face away from Jesus because he became, for a moment, the enemy of God because he was sin, and sin is God's enemy. And he was forced to drink the cup of wrath from the Father. 
there's a penalty, not because God is mean. There's a righteous wrath that God has for the sin. He's angry at sin, angry that his creation is so blemished, angry that something so beautiful that he gave for the benefit of, of all the creatures, but especially for mankind through Adam and Eve, was so marred. Was so marred. And then I look at myself and I think of what I've done, how I've marred his creation, how I've marred what he's done. And I realize that, yes, there's sin that I could receive by being a son of Adam, but there's my own sin that's enough to condemn me. That cup of wrath that a father has for me was born by Jesus. And Clark says here, um, one drop of this cup would bear down thy soul to endless ruin. And these agonies would annihilate the universe. He suffered alone. For the people, there was none with him. Because his sufferings were to make an atonement for the sins of the world. And in the work of redemption, he had no helper. The Father turned away. He was alone. Jesus alone bore all that. Paul is communicating that to Corinthians and to us. So, the other part that they talk about that's really important is, it says, he says, he was buried. Let's go back and pull up that last verse. Not from Corinthians, but 3 to 4. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. He was buried. You don't bury a live person, you bury a dead one. Once when you bury a live person, you're in trouble. And we've seen that with people have happened. But he was clearly buried and died. And the victory was when he was rose again. So, the, if the cross is the payment of our sins, the empty tomb, when he rose again, is the receipt, the proof that the payment was made. Okay? You needed to have both. So at the time of the process, we talked about Friday. Um, they used the term Good Friday. Okay? It was good because our sins were paid. It wasn't a good day. In the sense of kind of a negative triumph because, I mean, it was pretty, you know, if you've seen the, you know, the movies and read the stories, it was a down day. It was a hard day to see all that pain and all that suffering. Okay? It was, in that sense, a negative triumph. But when we take a look at what happened two days, three days later on Sunday, that's where the victory is. And that's where we know that it was a glorious day. That, that he rose again tells me my sins are, are paid. But it also tells me something else, and we'll talk more about the resurrection. So you all understand when they talk about three days... Um, it was Friday afternoon, all day Saturday, and then Sunday. It's not three 24-hour periods, not 72 hours, but three days. Kind of like if you go on a cruise ship. You know, they talk about five four days and four nights. You kind of arrive in the afternoon at four on four, and then you have to leave early morning on the, on the fifth day. So, in the same sense, it's that sense. And any part of a day counts as a whole day in, in both Greek and Jewish understanding at that time. Okay, let's move on to the next, verses 5 to 8. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then the last of all, he was seen by me also as one, as by one born out of due time. So the Cephas obviously is talking about Peter. And Paul makes special reference to the fact that Jesus met with Peter. And we get to read in the Gospels that he's, you know, he specifically talked with Peter by the shore. There was a special time where he had to know that Peter who denied him was redeemed. And he talks about that, that, that he was redeemed. Then by the twelve referring to the apostles, then over 500. And he said some are asleep. That's a euphemism for die, dead. Okay? But that at that moment when this was written, somewhere in the 40s, 80s, 40s to early 50s, is what we think, 
There were many of the witnesses were still alive at that time. And you could go to them and talk to them. And they'd say, yeah, I saw Jesus. I was there. Okay? And that's proof of the resurrection. All these witnesses. If we had 500 witnesses now at testifying to something, we would say, yeah, that occurred. They didn't have videotape evidence. And this is not the place where I'm going through the whole evidence. There's some really good books. Josh and his son, Sean McDowell, have evidence that demands a verdict. There's some other stuff I can refer you to if you want to look in the detailed part about why the resurrection. Gary Habermas probably does the best study on that. Um, he's at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Um, well worth it if you really have any question about that. But I love here what it talks about here at the very end. And the last of all, he was seen by me, one born out of due time. So everybody else kind of were there with Jesus. He had a three-year ministry. I like the words I, I remember reading. They talk about being a gestation. They had that time to spend time with him before they got to see the full manifestation of what he was doing. Paul didn't have that. Okay? He, the word born out of time, the actual Greek word almost means like a, a precipitous birth. Kind of like what you would see with a stillbirth or even an abortion, like a spontaneous abortion. It was not something that... Um, that happened naturally. It's kind of something that kind of happened all at once. The Greek word is ectroma for that. Okay? And he was basically seeing, I'm like, I didn't have it like everybody else. I'm not that big of a deal. I was just brought in kind of after the thought. Okay? And I got to see Jesus. So he's talking about a personal revelation as well. He's letting him know, yes, that all happened. You can talk to them. I'm included. I got to see Jesus, the risen Jesus. So one of the things we need to be aware of, also as a proof of the resurrection, is the behavior of the apostles afterwards. So all those 500, all those believers, what happened is Christianity exploded. It exploded. If it wasn't something that really happened, they would not have died for their faith. There were people they could talk to to confirm things. It started to just take over that area. It started to expand. And the more persecution it went through, the greater it spread. The greater it spread. Okay. Verses 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So as I mentioned a moment before, you know, Paul basically said, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the, the pedigree that all the other apostles and disciples did. I came in kind of an afterthought. And he's basically saying, I'm not... I don't have the pedigree that everybody else has. I'm not that big of a deal. And he's saying, I'm the least. I'm an apostle, but he's really trying not to draw attention to himself. And if you remember in the first chapter of Corinthians, we talked about that. He says, I didn't have great speech. You may follow somebody else. It's not about, it's not about me. Again and again, Paul is trying to give the message. It's not about me. Two-thirds of the New Testament is written by Paul. Two-thirds of what we received is written by Paul. And he's basically saying, it's not about me. It's not about the acclaim. It's not about any of those things. I'm not that great. He's that great. Continually, he's pointing to Christ. Continually, he's pointing to the fact that I'm kind of an afterthought, but God's that good of a God. He took me, and even though I'm the one, I shouldn't be, because I did harm to the believers, the new believers. I'm the one who persecuted them. I told them we need to get after them. I held the cloak when they stoned Stephen. There's no way I should be included. There's no way that amount of grace should ever have been given to me. My sin was too great. Don't you believe that sometimes? My sin is too great. I don't deserve that. No, none of us deserve it. It's not because of our deserving. It's because of His goodness. And He's that good. And Paul is basically saying here, he says, it's by the grace of God. 
We're not saved by anything else except the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What a model for us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I want to go each day. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That means it's God's grace that's driving me towards the cross. It's God's grace that changes me, that sanctifies me. And he says here, okay, His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Basically saying, I was so grateful for what He did for me that I gave my all. I did everything I could. I was diligent. I persevered. I did whatever I could. I subdued my flesh in any way that I can. He says later, I beat my flesh. I did anything I possibly could. Not because I'm trying to earn my way. Not because it's going to make me better, but because I'm so grateful for what he did. How could I not do? Give all that I have and all that I am for him. So it's out of gratitude. And he still says further into that same passage, right? Get not it, but the grace of God which was with me. He's basically saying, even though I labored as hard as I did, it was still God who was doing it through me. I was surrendering. The challenge for us is the surrender to press in to take hold of what God has. And he says, the grace of God was in me. And that's what drives me to work even harder. That grace of God is within each one of us. That's available to each one of us. So therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So basically he says it doesn't really matter who's saying the message. It's not about the messenger. The message of what Christ did is what counts. And again, continually, Paul is saying, I'm not here to boast about myself. I'm here to boast about the gospel, about the goodness of God. And he says, we preach, and the word there in the Greek means we continually talk about. Not something in the past. And that's what we do. Every day when we walk, we preach the gospel. We preach it in our words. We preach it in our deeds. We preach it in our thoughts. It affects everything. Moving to verse 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witness of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiful. So he's talking about this. You know, we talked about Friday, the crucifixion, the penalty of our sins was paid. Praise God. Okay? So he's saying, we don't have to go to hell because of that. But Sunday, when he was risen, we're made anew. It's a promise that we'll have a resurrected body. It's a promise that we'll now no longer just not go to hell. We'll get to go to heaven to be with him. We'll get to enter the throne. We'll get to go beyond the veil. We'll get to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. So Paul is saying, again, this, you know, the Corinthians weren't denying that Jesus died, but they didn't believe that they would have resurrected bodies. And there are many people now who says, we won't be resurrected. We will be resurrected and this is the only faith that I know that really emphasizes, and I've spent time looking at many of them, that we will be resurrected not only spiritually, but physically. We will have a physical body. Debate about whether we're going to have one just during the millennial kingdom and then something afterwards different in heaven, and I don't know all the details about that. And we can get into another discussion about this if we want to, but it's not the point. The key is, we will have a resurrected body. Jesus, what Jesus did, he lived on this earth for three years to show us what it could look like to live the way 
that mankind was supposed to live. What it lived was lived, tempted in every way, without sin. But his resurrection is also an example of what's going to happen for us, what will happen with us. We will have a resurrected new body. Okay? We'll be recognizable. I'm hoping it's going to look better than what I have now, but because I'm hoping it's spiritually going to be better than what I have now. So it will be redeemed and whole. Okay? It will be, we know in the end, we'll be without suffering and pain. It'll be a resurrected body. And it will have, and the neat thing, and you know, when you look at as an example of Jesus' resurrection, what did he do? He was able to move through walls, move through space, be able to do things that we can't do in our bodies. But he still said you could still touch him. There's still a physicality about him. And yet, he could go through other dimensions or something. It's really kind of amazing. And I don't know how many of you think about that, but when you think about it, it's like, wow, it's kind of like truly superhuman. Super four-dimensional man, what we've been under. Because God has extra dimensions, and he's going to give us some of those extra dimensions in his resurrected body. So if you want something to think about, that's something to hope for. Wow, this will be this body that will be able to do things. You don't need to watch Marvel or DC comics on television and all that to get a sense of what that looks like. Okay? Um, I want to emphasize this, and he mentions this again. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So, if there's no principle of resurrection then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him and defeated him. Him rising proves that he defeated death. If death has no power over Jesus, if death has power over Jesus, he's not God. If Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. If my sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. Therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he was unable to save. Him being risen is critical. Some of us accept it automatically, but we have to understand it's an essential part of our theology, theological belief. It basically defines who we are, that he died and that he rose again. And every confession, true Christian confession, declares that. Because it's in that risen that we get the full divinity of Christ, the power that's available, that you know that it was of God. And that's what he says, you know, in this life only if we have hope in Christ and we are all men the most pitiful. That means everything you've done in this life as a Christian, it's almost, when he's talking to people who suffered and died, it's almost a joke. There was a promise they had, a promise that their suffering was not in vain. Their suffering was not in vain. It's not just the penalty of death, it's also the suffering. The stuff that we, the walk of the Christian life is partly based on the promise we'll have in heaven. The trust that we'll have that this will not be for naught. This is preparing us. The suffering go through that conforms us to the image of Christ prepares us to receive what we're going to have in heaven. Prepares us to receive what we'll have in the resurrected body that we'll know how to deal with that. It's kind of our training ground, if you want to say it, to prepare us for what we're going to need there. God knows that. He's not wasting any time. He's not wasting any moment that He's doing in our lives. He's doing it for a reason to make us more like Jesus, which will get us more ready for heaven. We're not ready for heaven in our own flesh. There has to be a change in us. The sanctification is part of that process. The risen body is what the status will be when we're there. We'll need that to be there in the throne of heaven because that's an extra-dimensional throne. So, The divinity of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Romans 1.4. The sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 14.9. The, 
that justification rests on the resurrection of Jesus, Romans 4.25. Our regeneration rests on the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Peter 1.3. And our ultimate resurrection rests on the resurrection of Jesus, Romans 8.11. Charles Spurgeon says, The fact is that the silver thread of resurrection runs through all the blessings from regeneration onward to our eternal glory and binds them together. The reason I mention this is to understand that all of this has meaning and purpose together. There's consistency and uniformity. It actually flows well together. We just have a hard time grasping and understanding it. So we need the Holy Spirit. Moving on to verse 20 to 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But since by man came death, by man, okay, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. For each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Okay? First fruits, the Greek word for that is aparche, A-P-A-R, aparche, A-P-A-R-C-H-E. Okay. Um, so if you look in the Old Testament when they talk about first fruits, it's the first bit that you had, right? So when you harvested something, the first fruits are the first gleams, the first bit that you get. And you offer the very best. The first fruits are the very best that you first reap. You pick the best stuff first. Okay? And so Jesus was the best first. He was the first fruits. Okay. Um, when he rose from the dead at that time, after Passover, okay, was the beginning of the feast of the first fruits. So after the Passover, after the cedar, they had the feast of the first fruits. So his resurrection was also symbolically within Jewish culture of the first fruits. And so he talked about by man, he's referring to Adam. So through Adam, we all died. In Christ, we are all. Redeemed, all saved. So, we were under sin, under the headship, the authority of Adam. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, and when we accept him, we are now under the authority of Christ. Actually, all of humanity is under the authority of Christ. The question is whether they get to be in his presence through Jesus or not. It's a rejection that each person has to make. It's not like Christ hasn't made himself known. It's either special revelation, where they've preached it, and one of the things we're to do is to share the message. That's why I'm going where I'm going in a couple of days. But also through general revelation, like it talks about in Romans. Look at creation. You know this couldn't happen by accident. They may talk about it by happen by accident, but there's no way. There is a creator. And if there's a creator, there's somebody we're held accountable to. It behooves us to find out what that creator expects of us. So, when will we be resurrected? The word here is the Greek word parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. And that's something that we all talk about as the second coming. Okay, his return, the coming when he will split the Mount of Olives. That parousia, when he comes, that's when we'll have that glorious time. That will be the end when he delivers and he's gone ahead to me for that verse. Yes, thank you. 1 Corinthians 15, 5-28. Okay. So, when you also talk about first fruits, you have to remember, he raised, you know, the, the Jairus' daughter was raised. Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. They were raised back in their original bodies. The distinction when Jesus came back and when we rise again, it will be with new bodies. So we're talking about first fruits. We're talking about an entirely new harvest. The first fruits of a new harvest, which is the new body, not the old. So you have to understand that distinction. That's important for us to know because that's another testimony to the fact that it will be something new, that we will not be in the original bodies that we were in before. Okay? They were almost like resuscitated from the dead. 
okay? Not resurrected in something that's new. Verses 24 to 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, and when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. When all, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Well, that's a lot there. So, Ephesians 1.10. Can you pull that one up, Rob? Or you can look at it. Paul reveals God's eternal purpose in history, that in the dispensation of the fullness of of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both of which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. So in Corinthians, first Corinthians, he's looking forward to the time when Jesus is with the Father and he's ruling over everything. Everything will be subject to him. Everything will be under his feet and he will have defeat death because at that time when we're before him at the Prusia, there will no longer be death. Death will be defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? We will not die. We'll be with him in eternity. There will be a resurrection for all. Everybody's going to be resurrected, either to life in heaven or forever separated from hell. That's the hard part, but that will happen. There is going to be eternity for all. Some say they won't, they'll perish, but there's going to be eternity. And he talks about that. Everything will be under his authority. Everything. The placement of where that will be will depend on what we do with what he said. So, right now, we all know that the prince of this world is Satan, and Satan has power. You can see what's happening in the media, and you can see what's happening in the world around us, particularly in our nation, how things have changed so quickly, and it's like, what's going on? There's no question. There's a force working against the forces of our God's family. And that force is the enemy. The adversary is against God. And he has power. He has authority. He can do things. Okay? There will come a time where he will not have any of that. No power. No power to affect us. No power to afflict us. No power to tempt us. No power to make us stumble. None of that power. Okay, but he also, one of the things he'll be putting under will be death. He says, in raising Christ from the dead, God has set in motion a chain of events that must culminate in the final destruction of death. And thus of God being, once again, as in eternity past, all in all. One of the things we have a hard time, God exists in the now. Everything is now to him. Time is his construct. He made it. He doesn't exist within it. He uses words like past, present, and future for our benefit. He says, I am what I am. He exists in the now. So, in a way, this may blow your mind a little bit, but really means that before I was born, he knew. He knew me. You know, David says he knew me in my womb. He knows each one of us in utero, baby, infant, child, teenager, adult, mature person, married, old person, dead, in heaven. Now, it's all now. It's not like he's waiting for us. It's all now. It's all now. It's all now. He enters points of time all as now. That's part like... Wow. It's hard to figure out. It really is hard to figure out because we see things linearly, sequentially. Time past, think something in the future, living in the present. To him, it's all present. It's all present. And the more we can be present, the more we're like his nature. The more we can be present, the more we're like his nature. Not worrying about the future. God doesn't worry about any future. There is no future to him. Not worried about the past. There is no past in that sense to him because it's all now. 
The other part that he says here, and I love what Paul says, death is our enemy. He put all enemies under his feet, and the last one to be defeated is death. This sin, this affliction, this things that we have, this perishing of our body, that is our enemy. That's because of the consequence of the fall. That was not how Adam was at the beginning. That's our enemy. Everything that we see when we suffer, our physical bodies fail us. That's our enemy. That will be defeated. Praise God. We won't be suffering anymore. Charles Spurgeon says this, If death is destroyed, why do Christians die? Death, since Jesus died, is not a penal infliction upon the children of God. As such, he has abolished it. It can never be enforced. Why die the saints then? Why? Because their bodies must be changed ere they can enter heaven. Saints die not now, but they are dissolved and depart. The point that I was saying earlier, we're being changed. Those who don't have Christ will die. They'll have the same bodies. They'll be resting the same. They will not be resurrected in something new. They will. That's another hope that we have. We remember that. We will have a new body. We'll have new abilities. There'll be new things that will be available to us. We don't talk much about what heaven's like. Because we don't know a lot about it, but we do know some things about it. Because Jesus went before. And we can see in what Jesus went before that we'll have at least that. We'll have at least that. That's a promise. That's what his resurrection was for us. There's hope. The challenges that we have, the struggles we have with our sin, with our fleshly nature, are things that defeat us day by day. We have to repent because of them. They will be banished. They will no longer bind us. Who the Son has set free will be free indeed. We will be free. So don't be dis- don't despair. You know, we despair. It's still focused on self about our sins, our challenges. We don't have to despair. We just know He promises. He's faithful to complete His good work. God is doing most of the work. Paul said it at the beginning that it's by grace He's doing it. It's the grace of God I am who I am. He's talking about the grace He sells. He's still fighting, so... He's encouraging us, don't just sit there and coast. Out of the gratitude of what God's done to you, go along with it, eagerly, knowing that there's a promise. And that promise is that we'll have something in the future in heaven with him that's going to blow our socks off. Okay? Those of you guys who like, young guys who like to watch Marvel stuff, and I grew up on comics and read all that stuff, you know, in so many ways more powerful than Superman. So many ways more powerful than the Hulk or Iron Man or any of those ones that you want to talk about. And much greater reward. Much greater reward. God exists outside time. Time doesn't exist for Jesus. Time space doesn't exist for Jesus. We can see the universe is so huge. It will have no meaning. We could be at any point in the universe at any time. Andromeda Galaxy, two million light years away. That's two million times six trillion miles. Okay? Far away. Okay? To be able to be there. And that's in our local cluster. Okay? The local group, actually, within the Virgo supercluster. It's small. Small area that we're in. And the universe is far beyond that. Far beyond imagination. We don't even understand dark energy, dark matter. How many other dimensions that we don't know? We think there are 11. There could be many more. 11 minimum. Jesus went through other dimensions. There's much more out there. I'm letting you know this to let you know, wow, we, we, we think too small. C.S. Lewis says, you know, we're satisfied with mud pies. God's promising us so much more. You can hope and trust this is not for nothing. It will get better. Persevere, press in, take hold. The more we're like Jesus, the more we'll enjoy heaven. The more we're like Jesus, the more we'll be able to enjoy heaven. 
Nobody enjoys heaven more than Jesus. God enjoys heaven where he is. Nobody enjoys God more than Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're in, they've got the perfect, perfect unity, perfect joy. It's out of that joy that they came to earth to save us. Perfect joy. Perfect. And the more we're like Jesus, the more perfected our joy. That's what's available to us. And it's so worth it. It's so worth it. That God may be all in all. Jesus desired to glorify God. The whole intent was to glorify God. So that should be our intent. Is to be like Jesus, to glorify God. That's what his intent in all. That God may be all. And we worship that. And I love that we do that. But it's like a continual state of worship. So I invite you, please, you know, do that. Whether it's with words you understand or words you don't understand. Worship. Verse 29 to 34. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If in the matter of man I fought with the beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay, so the first part here, I'm going to be honest, I don't have a clear answer. Okay? And that whole idea of baptism of the dead, I mean, there are the Mormons who believe that, and that's why they want to know their genealogies. We definitely don't believe. We believe that once you die, you die. You can't get into heaven after the fact. Okay? So there's no doubt about that. Okay? Um, there are different interpretations. I look different ones up, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means. Okay? Um, there is some pagan customs they had at that time talking about baptism of the dead and what they did. And you have to realize the whole Corinthian church, what's going on is they, were, they understood some things of the gospel that Paul preached, but they were also introducing things from the culture and the local culture. And Paul was trying to make a separation distinction between those and saying, these are things of the word of God and these are things that are not. Some things are okay. If you don't know about it and you eat the food from the temples, don't make a big deal about it. But if it causes your brother to stumble out of love, don't eat it. Okay? So there were cultural things he said, you know, don't make a big deal about it. Okay? And what he's saying here is, I don't want to be focused on that. That's not the focus. The focus needs to be about, I need to die daily. And so he goes on to the next chapter, or the next part of that, um, of, that of those sentences saying, look, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why are we going through the suffering, the persecution? Okay, he talks about the beast in Ephesus. If you go back and you look um, in the book of Acts, it talked about going to Ephesus, and there's the Alexander, the silversmith, who complained, and they went against him because um, they, were, they had the temple of, of Diana, and because people were coming to Christ, they were no longer worshiping the idols, the silversmiths were losing money, and they weren't happy, and they tried to, you know, tried to go after them. And I've been to Ephesus. And, um, yeah, they had this huge auditorium, like over 20,000 people could be in it. Stuff that, you know, we'd see for our, our games here. And they were all going in there, talking about how great Diana is. So there's, if we think at the beast, they're talking about the humans there who are doing it, because we don't have any evidence there was any um, games with um, beasts or anything like that in him. There was no, um, that didn't happen in Ephesus. But the other point he's referring to is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is a reference uh, to an old Jewish custom at the time when the Assyrians came in. And it talked about during that time, they basically said, let's just go eat and forget it. We're going to die anyway tomorrow. Let's go just party now. And a lot of people have that attitude now. Well, we're going to die tomorrow, so let's just eat and party and have fun while we can. Or they think, hey, we'll go to hell. I'll be with my buddies and we'll party in hell. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. You'll be alone in hell. Other people there, you'll be separate, alone. Be cold and dark, 
creation, definitely not going to be any public. We don't do enough about it because so much in the media in the last 50 years have made hell this party place. Okay, this fun thing. Okay, God's a killjoy and the devil's a party guy. So I'd rather hang with him. That's not what it's going to be. Every desire that you have is going to be done in the worst possible. You want money, it'll be, and, and Spurgeon talks about it, Bunyan does, if you want to say sense, it'll be poured into you until you can't take it anymore. You have money in, in your mouth, down everywhere, on top of you, until you're smothered by it, killed out by it. So it'll be corrupted in the worst possible way. It'll be how the cheat of the devil is. Nothing is satisfying. It's just the cheat of our sin. Whenever we sin, it doesn't leave anything satisfying. There's nothing satisfying. That's the nature of hell. It will be always anguish. Okay? And so what Paul's talking about is who you hang with makes a difference. So if you're around people and associates who are basically having a devil-may-care attitude, as we say, who don't care, it's going to affect you. If you're hanging around people who believe certain things, it's going to affect you. <coughs> Evil company corrupts good habits. When I'm around people that are of the world, it affects me negatively. I wish it didn't. I wish I wasn't influenced by it. I am. I am affected by it. Praise God, I spent time with him. It helps me, but I'm affected by it. Okay? So we just have, now we're still called to, called to share the message, but they see things differently. And the more corrupt and evil, the more selfish they are, the more that they're against what the words of the gospel are, the more it's going to affect us negatively. Those of us who were at Pure Life Ministry have left it and noticed that the world has affected us. We're affected by the world. There's corruption there. Corruption in the sense of being imperfect. So he says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Awake to righteousness. He says, I die daily. I love what Spurgeon says in a sermon called Dying Daily. He says, first, every day, carefully consider the certainty of death. Second, by faith, put your soul through the whole process of death. Third, hold this world with a loose hand. Fourth, every day seriously test your hope and perseverance. And experience, not perseverance, experience. Next, or fifth, come every day just as you did at conversion, humbly at the cross of Jesus. We sing that song, Mary, never forget the wonder of the cross. Sixth, live in such a manner that you would not be ashamed to die at any moment. Wow. That's a big one. Am I ready at this moment to die? Oh, God, I didn't mean to do that. I was planning to do this, but I didn't. Live each moment. Like if I died right now, this, I would do it. be perfect to come before the presence of our Savior. And finally, have all your affairs in order that you're ready to die. So, but those are things. Have all your affairs in order. Um, okay. So, he says, awake to rise and do not sin. We recognize that we sin. The point that he's saying is not like we don't make mistakes or we stumble. He's basically saying the same thing that he said at the beginning. He's be eager. Be diligent. Do everything that you can in your conscience along with the Holy Spirit's work in concert. Not out of your own righteousness, but out of gratitude. Out of a hope. I don't want to sin because I want to see Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. I'm so grateful for what he did for me. That's what he's talking about. Verse 35 to 38. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body will they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive until it dies, unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. The Greek word doesn't say foolish one, it actually says fools. Okay? Um, pretty strong stuff. But basically, it talks about what we said before. The new body that we'll have, God's going to determine that. Okay? We will have to die. Every one of us. We will all die. 
okay? There'll be some death of this body. Even those at the rapture, there'll be some death. There will be some death of this body. We will not go to heaven in this body. We will not be before God in this body. So even those who are raptured up, they will be changed. The body will die. There will be a new, something new to bloom. And so what he says, it's a seed. That seed must die in the sense that it no longer becomes a seed to become the plant that it needs to be. What kind of plant exactly? What is it going to look like in heaven? We have some principles going to look like because we've seen that with Jesus, but we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. God's going to make that call. Okay, there are different rewards and crowns in heaven. There are different things that are going to happen in heaven based on the degree of what God's decided, but also on our degree of surrender and trust in the Lord. So, working out your salvation, the more you do it, has benefits. Now, it's not a basis. It's not in the same way that we can judge it. Only God knows what that scale is, truly. Now, the Word gives us an idea, but ultimately it will depend on what God decides. And I can promise you, God is just. God will give perfectly what each person deserves. Okay? Perfectly. But the point that he's saying is, hey, trust more in God. So everything he's saying again and again is emphasizing the same message. Verse 39 to 44, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also in the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Paul is re-emphasizing the same point that I mentioned earlier. Again, he's saying it's not going to be, different things have different things, it's going to happen. So humans are going to, in the new body, is going to be different. Everything is going to be recreated. Everything's going to be different in heaven. So even the animals, the trees, the world, the creation, everything that we see is going to be transformed according to how it's designed and what it was supposed to be at the beginning, but even something greater. That's the difference. There's a way that God made creation, and the whole idea of what Jesus did, it actually makes things better. So it's going to be better than it was at the Garden of Eden. It's going to be better than it was at that time. All of creation is going to change. And how they're going to be manifest, God's going to determine that. And some of it's going to be the suns, you know, stars, the universe that we talked about and I just explained about the local group and the Virgo supercluster and all the galaxies. That's going to look different, even that, but better. But it's going to have something related to what it was like. Just like fish. There'll be fish, but they'll be different. Things will be different. Okay, so it's a promise that something will be there. If you're wondering if your pet poodle is going to be in heaven, maybe, but it'll probably be different than what you think. <laughs> okay? <laughs> maybe different than what you think. Okay? So, one of the things Trapp says, some say, um, all flesh is not the same flesh. It's possible that only humans will be, because of being flesh, will raise up in heaven. Randy Alcorn's written a good book on heaven if you want to read more about it. Um, he believes, he thinks there are going to be animals in heaven. I'm not sure there will be or not. Um, they won't be the same as they were now. Okay? But God's going to give down. His priority is going to be where the, with us that he has a relationship with. But it does talk about the lion will lay down with the lamb, so there is some illusion there will be something there. We think it's more than symbolic. We think it's going to mean there are going to be some kind of other living beings of some type there. We know angels will be there. We know humans will be there. The other part is still unclear. It's still unclear. So, incorruption triumphs over corruption. Glory triumphs over dishonor. Power triumphs over weakness. Spiritual triumphs over natural. Raised in incorruption, raised in glory, raised in power. Okay? The uh, trap says, Three glimpses of the body glory was seen in Moses' face, in Christ's transfiguration, 
and Stephen's countenance. So you remember when Moses, when his face came with the Shekinah glory, and Jesus in the moment of transfiguration, and when Stephen was there when he was being stoned. You want to get a sense, a little sense of that. Scripture gives us a peek of what that looks like. That it will be something, you know, when Moses' glory, when Jesus' kind of glory of God came down with him, it was amazing. It will be truly glorious. We don't talk enough about how beautiful heaven will be and how it will be changed and how amazed we'll be our socks will be completely blown off. We can't imagine how nice it will be. Verse 45 and 49. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a light-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's us. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Further thing, basically saying the same thing that we've been saying. We will be like Christ. We're born like Adam. We'll have a physical body. We're going to use a spiritual body. We'll be like how Christ will be. He's emphasizing that again and again. Philippians 3.21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself? So there's a promise. Verse 50 to 53. I'm almost done, so I'm just going to go just a little over. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on... In, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. As I emphasized before, we can't enter the way we are now with our flesh and blood. When he means flesh and blood, he means this natural body. Okay? It has to be something that's new. Okay? This body is corrupted in the sense that it's frail and will break down physically. That's what he means by corruption. It will be a body that will be eternal. It will be an eternal physical body that won't break down. The cells will multiply. I mean, I can go through all that stuff and go, okay, that means all telomere things, it won't be great, and all that stuff. What happens? You won't get all that build up in the esmoplasmic reticulum and all that stuff. None of that will happen. It'll be a perfect body. All the stuff that we see, a degradation of the body, won't happen. You won't need me. You won't need me at all. Praise God. So, this is something they could not research or know. I said, tell you a mystery. Whenever you hear the word mystery, it means it's a revelation from God. God reveals it. Paul had a mystery that he revealed to them. They couldn't figure it out. Okay? He is talking about all will be changed. That point is when we talk about the rapture at that time, they'll be changed. That means their mortal bodies will die at that moment and there'll be a new body. So whether, I don't know how that'll happen. I'm not exactly sure, but that's what that means. Okay. The last trumpet. Boy, I'm going to be very brief about that last trumpet. Okay? But I want you to know, there's so many different things about the trumpet. You'll see it in Revelations. It talks about trumpet. Um, it talks about in Thessalonians about the trumpet. We're not sure what last trumpet that's referring to. We don't think it means the trumpet that the angel is going to blow at, the, at that time. But there is something as a trumpet, and one of the ones I like here that they talk about is referring to Roman military. Ironside says this. He says, when they broke trumpet camp, the first trumpet means strike the tents and prepare to leave. The second trumpet means fall into line. The third and last trumpet means march away. So the last trumpet describes the Christians' marching orders at the rapture of the church. So the last trumpet is basically, okay, we've already done broken the tents, we're now in line, we're marching to heaven. And we will have jobs to do there too, by the way. I even got into that. Okay, heaven's not just sitting on clouds playing harps. We will have jobs to do. There will be work, but it won't be burdensome, it won't be tiring. We'll have work. What's that going to look like? I don't know. 
I'm kind of excited about. Okay? So, this whole point of corruptible must put on incorruption, this whole concept of resurrection, this whole chapter was all about resurrection. The resurrection was necessary. It's critical to our foundational belief as a Christian. Not only for what happened with Christ to indicate who he is, his divinity, but also what's going to happen as a promise for us. So, verses 54 to 58 will say it all. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay? So I've talked about what's going to happen. He'll be rest. Death will be gone. But I love how he finishes it. Be steadfast, immovable. He says, hold fast at the beginning. He says, steadfast here, immovable. That means we're called to press, always abounding. Abounding doesn't mean just coasting along. It doesn't mean just doing one thing. Abounding means abundant, overflowing, abounding in the work, that the labor that we do is not in vain. That the work you do now, the life that we do, and everything that we're doing here, because you could say, hey, why don't John go to heaven? There's a reason we're here. It is for the glory of God. But it's also to make us more like Christ, to have the better enjoyment of heaven, the promise of what he has in the resurrection and what's going to be available for us. That's going to be very exciting. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you, Jesus, for being such a good God. Thank you for what you do. And we look forward to being with you in the new body that I just don't even understand. So I pray that you'll somehow show that. Without pain, that would be great right now, Lord. And uh, Father, just looking forward to what you're going to do in each man as they take hold of what you have to offer. You're worth it. In your name, amen. Thanks, guys.